Father, we um, come to this point in our service where we always and deliberately open up the Word of God. And we take it for what it is. It is the Word of God. It is true from cover to cover. It's objective truth. Whether or not we ever pick it up or pay attention to it or obey it, nevertheless, it is truth. We reject the the notion that it just becomes true when we read it and it warms our heart. For it is true whether or not we do read it and whether or not we find it warming our heart. It is nevertheless completely true. And so we come before it now. I preach it carefully. I preach it humbly, knowing that um, God is true and every man is a liar. And the Word says that. And I can err in what I say. I can err in my understanding. But your Word will never err. And so I, I come and very humbly I preach and, and proclaim um, an explanation of what I think your word is saying. So I rely upon your Holy Spirit to, to purify my words and to let it come through as, as your truth and to change our hearts and to uh, let us leave as different people, not just with a different head knowledge, a different understanding, but also with a different resolve to obey and to follow. Let your word just um, prick our hearts today let it, let it delve deep. Let it delve into those parts where it's uncomfortable for you to go, where it's uncomfortable for you to finger, where we'd rather you talk about something else. We invite you to go to those, those parts that are most critical today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I guess it's a lot like a, a surgeon. If you have a, a cancer in your pancreas and you're going to have surgery, you don't want the surgeon to say, well, I've decided to operate on your, your bladder today or your right lung. You want them to operate where the problem is. Today is our 14th message based on the book of 1 Peter. And we have repeatedly said, and you've got this by now, that Peter is a book about suffering. But it's not just about suffering or enduring. It's about being more than a conqueror through him who loved us. It means suffering well. Suffering in a way that brings glory to God, in a way that expands the kingdom of God. There are, as we look through this book, different kinds of suffering that are mentioned in First Peter. There is the suffering for doing good, where the example of Jesus is given as a supreme example of the one who suffered for doing good. There's also, within this book, the suffering of a saved spouse, who's married to an unsaved spouse. And you say, well, was that in there? Well, it really was. You need to look back in First Peter and you'll see that that's addressed. There is the obvious suffering for being a Christian. Suffering because you are named by the name of Christ and you have given allegiance to him. And there is the suffering under trying circumstances, which, you know, who of us doesn't experience that every week of our lives, maybe every day of our lives, certainly... You know, it didn't stop with December 31st, 2020, did it? Everybody talked about what a year it was. Well, 2021 is not getting off to a spectacular start um, in, in my mind. And yet we are called to suffer under trying circumstances and to bear up under that. The text I have for today comes from 1 Peter chapter 5. You can turn there or watch it on the screen behind me. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering 
are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, crystal clear in this little text, we have an enemy. He is the devil himself. He is our adversary. The devil was once a good angel, but he led a rebellion in heaven against God, and he was expelled from heaven. The devil is real, and the devil is personal. He is our arch enemy. He is an accuser. That's what the name Satan means. He accuses the saints day and night. When you hear that little accusatory voice about God doesn't really love you, he hasn't forgiven that sin, he couldn't forgive that sin. Now look at you, and you call yourself a Christian. You do that, and you consider yourself a Christian. That's the voice of the adversary doing what he does best, accusing the saints, and he will do it until he's ultimately thrown into the lake of fire. In the book of Job, you see so clearly his work of being an accuser. For that's exactly what he did in the opening chapters of the book of Job. He had the audacity to go before God himself and accuse Job and try to find fault with Job before God himself. And you probably know how that book ends. But uh, just a point this morning, he is an accuser. He'll even accuse us before God and try that game plan. Satan has many, many cohorts. We call them demons. They, too, are fallen angels. They're angels that that were kicked out of heaven, expelled from heaven, when Satan arose against God. They're underlings who work for him in his attacks, his relentless attacks against the saints. And just as God has no evil in himself whatsoever, not even a spot or a stain or a, a stripe of evil, Satan has no good in him. There's not an iota of good in Satan, not an iota of kindness or mercy or holiness. There's none. As all perfect as God is, Satan is all evil. Let it be known, he is all evil. He has only evil designs for you and your family and your children and your grandchildren and your pastor and all the saints on earth. He has no goodwill towards any of them. Peter says that our enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Just like a a lion in the jungle will look for that weaker antelope or that weaker deer or that weaker baby elephant and will mercilessly single it out and try to separate it and kill it so they can eat it Satan will look for any of us, any one of us, who is weaker, who is struggling, who is separated from the pack, who is kind of isolated from the the rest, in an attempt to destroy us. And this is just one reason why we need each other. Because Satan will try to go in for the attack, 
if he can separate, pull us aside, if he finds one of us isolated or weaker or struggling, that will be the one that he targets. The devil is single-focused. He has one goal, and that's to separate men and women from God. Men and women are the crowning part of the creation. So his one goal, and the only place he can really focus on since the cross and the resurrection, is trying to separate men and women from God. That was his goal in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in a perfect existence in the Garden of Eden. And the best part of the Garden of Eden was not that everything grew easily and wonderfully and the fruit was so delicious and the nights were warm and nice and and they never had to deal with 12 inches of snow or slippery roads. The best part of the Garden of Eden was unbroken fellowship with God. Even to the point that the Bible records that God would come down in the cool of the night and walk with them. How many times have I longed for that? Maybe you have too. Just wish I could have a personal audience with God for a few minutes where we just sit across from me and we, I say, Lord, just 15 minutes, 10 minutes. I'd just like to talk to you a little bit. And yet, you know, he doesn't do that. He's never shown up in my office. He's never suddenly been in my living room. But how I've longed to be able to, to see him face to face and to talk like you and I can talk. Well, that's what Adam and Eve had in the garden. It was unbroken fellowship with God. That's what Satan comes to attack now. Any, any fellowship that we have with God, that's his focus, to try to separate us from God and from fellowship with him. Satan, in the form of a serpent, lied to Adam and Eve. And they believed the lie, and they fell into deliberate sin, severing their fellowship with their maker. When Beth recently broke her femur back on December 20th, we assumed and hoped that, well, maybe it's a clean break. Maybe it's something they'll easily be able to put a pin or a screw in or something, and she'll be as good as new. Maybe just a slight hairline fracture. But no, it was a complete shattering of the neck of the femur. We saw the x-rays, and you couldn't, even, it wasn't, you couldn't make out the parts and see it broke because it was just all, all messed up. It was shattered, all these broken pieces in there. In fact, I asked the surgeon at her post office, how do you know you got all the little pieces? He said, I got them all. <laughs> I said, well, how do you know you got them all? And he looked at me like, are the questions going to go on forever here this morning or what? Anyway, um, when... Adam and Eve had their fellowship with God broken. It wasn't a little hairline crack. It wasn't a slight little fracture that could be fixed up with, a, with some duct tape or some gorilla tape. But it was a complete shattering of the fellowship that we had with our Creator. That was Satan's goal when he tempted Adam and Eve. And it's still his goal to shatter the relationship that we have with our Creator. His methodology is still the same. Make no mistake about it, Satan is not creative. He's not that intelligent. He doesn't have an endless bag of tricks. He really, don't give him too much credit. Never give Satan too much credit. He lied to Adam and Eve. He lies to us. He doesn't have a whole lot of methods, a whole lot of, don't ascribe to Satan more credit than you should. 
He's a fallen angel. He's a created being. He's not equal and opposite to God, like the yin-yang symbol. It's not these equal and opposite forces that are just kind of holding everything. In no, God is God. And as Mark told us, there's no term limits on that. Satan is a fallen angel. He's a created being. And he's got a few things he does really well. He lies. He deceives. He accuses. He doesn't know the future. God knows the end from the beginning. Satan does not. What Satan knows is the past. He knows the history. And he builds his temptations that he builds for us based on our history. He knows what has worked with us in the past. He knows where we've slipped up before and where we get tripped up. And so he just brings those same things. You say, well, why do I always throw the same things? Well, Satan knows kind of your Achilles heel. He knows your weak areas. He knows what's work. He knows what methods that have worked with other people. He doesn't know the future, but he knows the past. And so he's really quite limited, even though he makes an awful lot of noise. Um, don't ever forget that Satan is a liar. Some of his lies are loud, like with a megaphone, but maybe most, many of his most successful lies are whispers, just little whispers, very soft little whispers, that he speaks something to us that is a lie. There might be an element of truth in it, so it sounds like, well, maybe it really is true. Maybe that is how God feels about me. Maybe that is, is how it works. But it's a lie. He can only lie. Even Jesus said he, he has no, not the ability to speak truth. I hear Satan's lies all the time to me. And so do you. And Adam and Eve believed the lie and ate the fruit. It gave Satan a certain authority over the earth. It gave him an authority that he had not had before. Um, Jesus said, in the, it's recorded in Luke's um, gospel, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and all their glory for it's been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Well, you take a step back from that and let me just tell you, it's not totally true. There's an element of truth in what Satan said to Jesus, but it wasn't totally true. In a sense, Satan is the ruler of this world. He has been given a certain domination because our first father and mother willingly chose to fall into sin. But in the final analysis, all authority then and now belongs to God. So he was even trying the old half-truth with Jesus, hoping that in Jesus' Weakness at that point. Weakness because he was in a human form. Weakness because he hadn't eaten for 40 days. So he was hungry. He was hoping that maybe he could trick Jesus with a little half-truth, a little part of it's true, part of it's a lie. But of course, it didn't work. And it didn't work. This isn't a sermon on, on the temptation, on temptations or even the temptation of Christ. It didn't work because Jesus always stood on this, the Word of God. And that's that's, again, this is not a sermon on temptation, but when you're tempted, stick with the word of God. When Satan speaks lies to your heart, the ones that you and I both hear, you those little whispers or the lies, stick with this, what this says. I don't know how many times when I'm talking to people, you know, they're, 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 they're responding according to their feelings. 
And they're speaking according to their feelings. And I just have to say, but what does the word say? What does the word say? Well, maybe the word doesn't feel true to you. I don't care if it feels true to you. It is true. Whether or not you and I feel like it at a certain point, we might feel like that lie of Satan is more true. Get it fixed in your hearts that this is true. From cover to cover, always has been, always will be. Not one word of this, God says, will fail. And so always stick with this, regardless of the emotions, the feelings, the voices you hear, stick with this. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted, and it's the the methodology that will be just as successful for any one of us today. When Jesus was resurrected from the grave on the third day after the crucifixion, it proved that he had won total victory over Satan. Never again would the Son of Man be crucified. You can take that to the bank. He won't have to go through that again. He died once for all, according to the Scriptures, and was raised. He died once for all. Never again would we need to fear sin or death. I even mentioned this morning with the whole mass thing that hopefully none of us fear the virus. I hope you don't fear getting sick or even dying. Whether you, get, whether you die from that or die from cancer someday or die from too many birthdays or die from a car accident or a crime, I hope you don't fear death. Jesus rose so we don't have to fear death. Now, you might fear getting dead, and we've talked about that before, but you shouldn't fear what's going to happen when you step aside, step over onto the other side. That should not hold fear. If you're frightened about that, come and talk to me. Let's have a conversation on the phone. Seriously, you shouldn't fear dying. The whole purpose of Jesus dying was to eliminate that fear of death, the fear of punishment, the fear that, oh, no, how am I ever going to stand before God with what I have done? The resurrection was like the locking of a padlock on the chains of Satan. He can roar, and he can lie, and he can deceive, but he cannot change his ultimate destiny. He can't get that lock open. He can't pick it. He can't figure out the combination. That his eternal destiny is permanently fixed, and that was fixed the day that Jesus rose from the dead proving his victory over sin, over death, and over the power of the devil. Satan's ultimate end is in the lake of fire. Somebody told me recently, a few weeks ago, I'll tell you who that someone was. It was, it was my bride. We went home from church. She said, well, that was a hellfire and brimstone sermon. I said, it was? I didn't even know it. I wasn't trying for it to be. All I was trying to do and all I ever try to do is to preach what this says. I don't set out that, well, I think we need a hellfire sermon today. I do set out that, what does the Bible say? What does it teach? What does it declare to us and, and declare that to you? I don't endeavor to, well, let's have, let's have a hellfire sermon today. It's like, no, let's preach the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God. Just get it out there. Let it do its work 
in our hearts. <clears throat> so Satan's ultimate end is the lake of fire. Um, Jesus said that the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. So um, this has been fixed for a long time in history. God created the lake of fire for the devil and for his angels. That's his ultimate end. Nothing's going to change that. Satan can't change it. He can't, nor would he, beg God to change it. He is not going to be redeemed. He cannot be saved. His ultimate end is the lake of fire, and that is fixed. Nothing's going to change that. But for now, for now, the earth is his little playground. Just like a cat plays with a mouse, Satan attempts to play with the most precious thing in all the world to God, us. People made in his image. And he messes with us, and he plays with us, and he plays little games with us, and he tries to lie, steal, kill, deceive, destroy. He cannot do anything at all about his ultimate end in the lake of fire. So he does the second best thing, and that's to try to take as many of God's children with him. And he does that pretty well. Even Jesus admits that. Broad is the road of destruction. And many there be that are on it, and the road to life is narrow, and few there be that find it. And that's the reality. Most people that you and I know are not going to be in heaven with Jesus one day. They're not going to. So Satan has done a pretty good job of deceiving people, and he deceives people today as much as, as ever. We do not need to be like those that are deceived, especially if we're sticking to this, sticking to the Word of God. Well, that's why the Bible informs us that we are engaged in a warfare. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If our battle is otherworldly, then our weapons need to be otherworldly. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We said that First Peter is a book about suffering. All of our suffering goes back to Satan himself. We might wonder, well, why does Satan have so much power if Christ defeated him at Calvary? Well, maybe the real question is not, well, why does Satan still seem to have so much power? But maybe the real question is, why has God allowed the world to continue? Why hasn't he just ended it all, thrown Satan and his minions into the lake of fire, taken us all to heaven, and let us live happily ever after? Why does his return that we look forward to as believers and have looked forward to for 2,000 years. It's called the blessed hope of all believers. Why has his return seemed so slow? Why hasn't Jesus just returned and cast Satan in the lake of fire? Well, it is because, and the scripture tells us this, that God is not slow as people count slowness, but he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. There are those who are still to be saved, 
those that are still going to be saved. They're some of our family members. They're some of our co-workers. They're some of our neighbors. They're some of our grandparents. They're some of our grandchildren. They're some of our legislators. They're some of our educators. And God knows that they are still going to be saved. And so he is willing to be patient and to tolerate the ongoing evil that people do to other evil, other people in order that heaven may be populated with some more people. So for eternity, he will have the fellowship with certain ones that are to be saved. For now, the world continues. And Satan still has a measure of power and authority in this world, but the war is won. Satan's end in the lake of fire has been sealed, but he can still win battles. He has lost the war, but he can still win skirmishes. The battles involve, they always involve the souls of people around us who we love. That's where he's fighting. Um, Satan doesn't worry much about the ecology, the environment, climate change, trees. He hates people. He hates the crowning part of God's creation. That's why Christian marriages can still end in divorce. It's why godly people still get caught in all kinds of insidious addictions. It's why you and I, underline the I there if you want, struggle with our emotions, like anxiety and depression and a host of other emotions. It's why some of our children who once walked with Jesus so fervently and so earnestly do not seem to be walking with him today at all. Satan has lost the war, but he is still warring against the saints, and he is still winning some battles. Peter is wanting us to know who our enemy is so that we know how to resist him. I had a persistent chest pain some years ago, and... It persisted long enough that I, even I, decided to make an appointment with the doctor, which I do kind of reluctantly. I confess that to you. So I went to see my doctor and reluctantly told him I had this persistent chest pain that had gone on for a number of weeks. My doctor, who I love dearly, is a a man of God, and I, I trust his medical wisdom above anybody else's bar none. And I could give you some examples of why I do, but I won't this morning. Um, he didn't call 911 and say, well, you need to go to the hospital immediately and get checked out. He didn't say, well, just go home. It's probably nothing. But he did a very, very thorough examination, asked me a bajillion number of questions to ascertain what was really going on. And by the end of that appointment, he said, the problem is not your heart. The problem is the lining around your lungs is infected. And he addressed it with just the right prescription. You know, one of these powerful antibiotics they give you, take for 10 days or something. You know, don't change the routine, just do this. And it all went away. God wants us to address the spiritual battles with just the right approach. And he's given us that approach. If our car is not running right and you take it to a mechanic, 
the last thing you want a mechanic to do when they're working on your car is to just start replacing parts. Well, maybe it's the alternator. We'll do that first. Well, that's $700, didn't fix it. Well, maybe it's the, the this or that, or the regulator, or maybe it's the computer. We'll try that. They replace that for another X number of dollars. That didn't, you don't want them just to replace parts. I didn't want my doctor just to call 911. We want the mechanic to figure out, well, what is causing the problem and replace the part that's broken. God wants us to know who it is that we're fighting, what it is that we're fighting, that it is the enemy, the devil, who is prowling around looking for someone naive or someone who is somehow compromised in order that we can address the problem specifically and use the weapons of our, our warfare. And those, many of those weapons are mentioned in, in Ephesians, as you probably know. Now that we know who our enemy is and what he is up to, God says to us very simply, this is, this is some of the, the approach that we are to take. This is some of that, that, that prescription, that if you're wise, you won't deviate from the routine, but you will exercise it. It's be self-controlled and alert. Be sober-minded and watchful. It comes through two different versions differently. Be self-controlled and alert. Be sober-minded and be watchful. That's what God is telling us through Peter today. That you have an enemy, you had this arch enemy, we've talked about that enough this morning. He's out to get you, he's out to separate you from God. He's, he's out to, to let you join him in the lake of fire one day. And you and I are to be self-controlled and alert in this present age. Be sober-minded and watchful. Ever heard of young sailors from the Navy base? And they're, they're just left home. They're you know, young, 18, however old you have to be. And, and for the first time, they're away from home. And, and they get a little bit of money in their pockets. And they get a weekend to go to Chicago. And they get drunk. And they get robbed. And they don't remember a thing. And they stumble back to the base with black eyes and a broken jaw. Why? Because they were not self-controlled and alert. Ever read of a young woman who was out partying with a questionable crowd in a questionable place and never even noticed that somebody slipped something in her drink? She leaves with somebody she just met and doesn't remember a thing, but wakes up later with her clothing kind of disheveled. She was not self-controlled and alert. That's why God tells us, be self-controlled and alert. We need to be careful of the company that we keep. The Bible says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, parents have been telling their junior high kids and high school kids that for years, um, but kids still need to hear it. But God needs to say it to us big people, too. Be careful of the company that you keep. Bad company will corrupt good character. It's a given. One plus one equals two. Be careful of what you are beginning to think about in your mind. 
All falls start with up here. When you just begin to think about things that you shouldn't think about. Just a little, a little smidgen, a little bit. What, what harms a little smidgen? But you open the door to thought patterns, ways of thinking, fantasies that, that you really shouldn't be thinking about. <clears throat> Don't be mastered by anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is Scripture. You don't want to be a slave to something in this world, a slave to a, to a temptation, a slave to an addiction, a slave to a habit, a slave to your emotions. You don't want to be a slave to anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be his slave. You want him to be master. You want him to be Lord. You want to say, I am just an unworthy servant. I am a slave to Jesus. That's the only slave that you want to be. Resist your enemy. Stand firm in the faith. Don't back down in the battle. Because you have overcome the spirit of Antichrist, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We're, we're being told in the word there that, that Jesus in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so in the face of the battle, however bad it looks, however severe it looks, however scary it looks, don't back down. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. doesn't matter what everybody else is saying. doesn't matter if your brothers and sisters in Christ have gone off a deep end with their philosophies. Don't back down. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eye on what his word says. And know that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I think I, the picture I get in my mind is, is of David standing before Goliath. You know, all his brothers, all the other soldiers of Israel with all their brawn and their size and their, and their shields and their weapons, they're all shaken like this in the face of Goliath. And there's David. Tries on the armor and says, well, this, this isn't made for me. It's too bulky and heavy. I can't go, go to fight, fight the Goliath like this. But he knew that greater was he who was in him than he who was standing before him. He knew that God would enable him to slay Goliath, and that he did. So don't back down in the battle. Don't back down the fight. Know that he is within you. We have weapons at our disposal to resist him. We have the spiritual armor. Um, I mentioned that before. I'll just read from Ephesians 6. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And in Corinthians, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. A little old 
me and you. When we take up the weapons that God has given us, we have the power to demolish spiritual strongholds. We become like we said before, David standing against Goliath. All we have in our hand is a simple slingshot. No armor, no spear. But greater is he who is in us than he was in the world. When it comes to weapons, my personal favorite, when it comes to spiritual weapons, is prayer. And I call it my private secret weapon. Sometimes, you know, my biggest problem, I'll tell you, my biggest problems in life, I'll tell you what they are. It's when there's a people problem in our church. That's what keeps me up at night. I don't worry about money or security or stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's an irritant, and I wish I had to deal with it. But I, when, when there's a problem in our church, a people issue, it tears me up. It really does. It keeps me awake at night because I'm just so distraught over something. I mean, somebody might be mad at me and, and railing at me. And, um, but I can tell you, my secret weapon is prayer. Because nobody even has to know that I'm fighting. My wife doesn't even have to know what I'm doing. I can get by myself and I can say, Lord, I've got a problem. I really need your help right now. And I know that you know, I'm going right into the throne room of God. We approach his throne of grace with confidence and full assurance of faith. And like one of those guys did in the Old Testament, I don't remember the name, I, I did a sermon on this once, but he had an urgent problem. I think the enemy was coming for them or something. And he goes in the house of God and it says he, he spread out the problem before the Lord. And I, I like that picture. So I like thinking of I'm going right, right before God and I'm spreading it out. Okay, Lord, we've got a problem. I'm really upset. I'm really anxious. I'm really worried about this. What about the effect it's going to have on the church? Tears me up. And yet, I know God, and he has done this, I don't know how many times in our 34 years here, where a problem became a non-problem. All of a sudden, it was okay. All of a sudden, you know, we were able to talk it out, and there was peace again. Um, so, you want to know how I fight my battles? My little secret weapon isn't secret anymore. I just told you. I privately, secretly go to prayer and lay it before him. And I love being able to do that. I love being able to do it all by myself. Because sometimes I'm even awkward around other people. Self-conscious around other people. But by myself, I don't feel self-conscious with me and God. I never have. I don't think I ever will. I'm more comfortable with him than with anybody else in the universe, including my wife. I'm really comfortable with him. And I love being able to pour out my problem before him and know that he is going to do battle in the heavenly realms as a result. <clears throat> now I'm going to lose my spot here. The one who thinks of himself or herself is the weak. The one who thinks they are the weakest is actually mighty when they use the weapons that God has given us. Um, remember Gideon? Gideon was threshing wheat inside a wine press to keep it from the Midianites who were oppressing the Israelites. And the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, you know, this guy who's so scared that he's hiding inside a wine press, threshing wheat, 
And the, the, the angel greets him with the words, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And there has to be some humor there, I think, some sarcasm there. Um, but the Lord would say that to us too. The Lord is with you, O mighty woman of valor, O mighty man of valor. The next part of the text says, resist him, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's something about our nature, you'll all agree with us this morning, that we can handle problems greater if we know we're not alone. I mean, it's true, right? Misery does like company. If we think we're the only one, it's a lot harder than if you think, well, other people are, are suffering too. The young follower of Christ who is struggling with being sexually pure is really comforted when they find out that every young believer in Christ struggles with being sexually pure. Oh, it's not just me. No, it's not just you. And it's, it's, there's a comfort there, you know. It's not just me. If our marriage is a bit rocky, it's comforting to know that everybody who is married for any longer than approximately 18 hours, has struggled in their marriage. And you can even talk to, you know, the greats, you know, Dr. James Dobson, the great men and women of God, and if you can talk to them privately and say, has your marriage always been as perfect as it obviously is? And they'll say, well, it's not perfect now, and we've been through some really rough times. And that's just, that's fact. And it's comforting to know it's not just your marriage. It's not just you. There's nothing something wrong with you. We all struggle. And there's a comfort in knowing, okay, it's not just me. If we lose our job in a massive layoff, we feel a lot better if a whole bunch of people lost their job. <laughs> it's just me. I was the only person that had to fill the file box and be walked to my car by a security guard. That's pretty, you know, pretty tough to take. And so Peter says in verse 9, and I guess Peter knows this about being human, your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. So we're never alone in our struggle against Satan. So take heart, we're all in this together. Till we get to heaven, we'll all be in it together. As we come to the end of this great book, there comes a very great promise. And that's that the suffering is relatively short. And Peter says that. Notice the word relatively short. It might not seem like it, but the text, the Bible says that your suffering, my suffering, the suffering of saints throughout the world today is relatively short. In the whole scheme of things, it's short. So it might not seem like it when you're having to endure it. Of course it doesn't seem like it. But if you take the little bit of time that is your life and compare it to eternity, it's a, it's a breath. It's a second. It's momentary. And so the Lord is not downplaying the reality of our pain and suffering. The Scripture doesn't, never does that. But it does say, take a step back and realize that your pain and suffering for the here and now compared to all of eternity that you'll one day have with me, it really is short. 
It really is relatively short. So can we not bear up longer? Can we not suffer longer, whatever that suffering might look like? And of course, it's different for everybody else. The part of 1 P we read last week said that if we humble ourselves before God, that he will lift us up at the proper time. And this closing part of 1 Peter that we're looking at today says that after we have suffered a little while, that the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So take heart. There will be an end to our suffering. There absolutely will be an end to all of our suffering. Graduation day is coming. When I started college, you have to know that I didn't like school. I really, I really did not like school. People are surprised when they hear that. I, I, I can say I hated school. Until I went up to Bible school and seminary, everything before that, I really, really hated. It wasn't a pleasant experience. That's why I hate, I don't, I shouldn't use the word hate, I don't like the fall. The fall reminds me of the feeling I used to get when it was time to go back to school. And I had to deal with that instead of doing the things I really wanted to do. Um, how do I get off on that? I don't know. Oh, graduation day is coming. <laughs> when I started college, this sounds so shameful, some of you are going to not relate, because you loved college, you were excited about college, you were going off to college, being in college. I started counting the days from day one to I knew four years later I would get my bachelor's degree. I just wanted to mark them off the calendar, because I didn't want to be in school. I had other things that mattered to me a lot more. I had other things that I liked doing. Um, and school was just a big bother. It was something I had to do, you're supposed to do but it was always an interruption to what I really, really wanted to do. So I just counted the days, and sure enough, one day was graduation day. The four years was over. When we walk with Jesus through these things, through suffering, they will not be our undoing unless we let them be that, but quite the opposite. And we can be sure that one day it will be over. It will be the last day of our suffering. Meanwhile, God will use those things to make us strong, firm, and steadfast. If you get beat up on the soccer field, but you win, is there sadness or is there rejoicing? There's rejoicing. Even if you got a broken bone. When the special forces go up against the enemy, but they return and their mission is successful, is there depression or is there joy? Well, there's joy in the same way the God of all grace will himself restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. And we will come out stronger. We will come out victorious and triumphant. You know that many of my sermons often remind me of hymns that I grew up with in the Lutheran church. And I don't even tell you a fraction of the times when I'm thinking about a great hymn of the faith that I grew up with that is in my heart from years ago, because I don't want to you know, bore you with that or uh, impose it on something that isn't part of your experience, but suffice it to say, I'm often thinking of a great 
hymn of the faith when I'm preaching. And today I'm thinking of one that was number 447 in the old Lutheran hymnal, and it's called Fight the Good Fight. And I just want to read the words to you this morning. I think they'll be on the screen, which will help reinforce them as I read them. Um, I, I wish I had the kind of voice that would let me sing to you, because the melody is in my heart, and back in the day I had a nice organ that I could play and, and lead the congregation in, in singing this song. Fight the good fight with all thy might. Christ is thy strength, and Christ thy right. Lay hold on life, and it shall be thy joy and crown eternally. Run the straight race through God's good grace. Lift up thine eyes and seek his face. Life with its way before us lies. Christ is the path and Christ the prize. Cast care aside upon thy guide. Guide is a capital G, the reference to God. Lean and his mercy will provide. Lean and the trusting soul shall prove that Christ is its life and Christ its love. Faint not nor fear, his arms are near. He changeth not, and thou art dear. Only believe, and thou shalt see that Christ is all in all to thee. I assure you, based on this book, book of First Peter, this book, the Word of God, that God will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. And I'd like to read to you from Revelation 21 where we have that assurance. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Now for a short time, your suffering might seem great, but compared to the whole picture, it's light and momentary. And we have so much to look forward to and so much to be sharing with people around us so they too might be part of that great crowd at the marriage supper of the Lamb, people gathered around the throne of God one day, giving glory and honor to Him. Let's stand. Receive now the benediction of our Lord. Now may God be above you to bless you, beneath you to uphold you, around you to protect you, within you to sanctify you, and before you to guide you. May Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you this day and tomorrow as you walk through the struggles of life and ultimately throughout all of eternity. God bless you. Amen.